My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. I'm Melissa Francis. I was a child actor on Little House on the Prairie. Now I'm a mom and a news anchor. I've got my secrets of my success story. When you try and misrepresent yourself or be something you're not, people can tell. They can smell it. So I don't think you have a choice. I think you have to be authentic. Media's everywhere. Social media's everywhere. And it's exhausting. I mean, who has time to try and be Superwoman? The next Superwoman I see, I mean, they're going to strangle her with their cape or I'm going to borrow it to clean up a spill for my kids. But when you make a mistake, own it, apologize. It's just easier. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Melissa Francis is an anchor and host on the Fox Business Network and Fox News Channel. Melissa is also an inspirational speaker and author, first of her best-selling memoir, Diary of a Stage Mother's Daughter, and of Lessons from the Prairie. She is best known for her role as Michael Landon's daughter, Cassandra Cooper Ingalls, on Little House on the Prairie. She earned an honors degree in economics from Harvard University, and she lives in Manhattan with her husband and three children. What comes across to me is that you're so down to earth. How have you managed fame and fortune so well? That's quite an accolade. I don't know that I've managed it so well. I mean, I think one of the things about me is that I'm I'm so conscious of my faults and flaws that I'm I make fun of myself a lot. I think that I tried to write a book basically to make you laugh mostly at my expense. And when you get the, to the end of it, I think you'll find we have a lot in common. Whoever you are out there listening, you'll be surprised to know that we all have a lot in common. And there's a lot of unifying pain and laughter and experience in life. And through it, we learn some pretty good lessons. So maybe by recounting every pie to the face I've taken in my life, when you're done laughing, you can see what the lesson was and maybe not go through some of the same pain I did. Some really helpful lessons indeed. Uh, my, our producers are so excited that you used to be on Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> it was fun. It looked really fun. And so we wanted to know, do you ever see yourself in old episodes? Do you kind of flip through the channels and like, oh my gosh. I do. And you know, I always cringe. I can't watch myself on TV, even now. Like really? it just, it makes me very self-conscious. When I was a kid, it was really hard to watch. And they would want you to watch so that you could get better. I mean, you have to watch to get better. But it would really embarrass me. Um, and I went back and I put it on for my kids. And it was so funny because first they were like, your hair, it's not the same color. And I'm like, when I was young, it was, I have a brown-haired son. I'm like, it was your color. And then when I got older, I just turned this color. There you go. <laughs> no, they know, they know the truth. The other thing that was painful about it was that they assumed that that was what the world was like when I was growing up. Oh my so God. they assumed that I rode around in wagons, That's like hilarious. that I'm that old. So they're like, well, remember when mom was little, they didn't have cars. I'm like, no, no, nope, nope. They had cars. That was mom acting on a show that wasn't of this time period. But I did have fun showing it to them. It is I don't know. My sister used to always make fun of the faces that I made when I cried. She said I look like a frog. And I was like, no. And then I went back and look. I'm like, ooh, that's very frog-like. Oh, well. Oh, well. So you talk a lot about admiring Michael Landon in the book, partly because he was a master of reinvention. And you've reinvented yourself, too. So I'm just wondering what your tips are for a successful reinvention. Well, I think it's a lot about taking risk. You have to have the bravery. You know, something may be okay, but it's not great. It's not right. It's not what you want. And you have to have the bravery to, I say, turn it off and turn it back on again. I was in tech support at Harvard Business School when I was an undergrad. And that's where I learned this great lesson that the only thing tech people know, and come on out there, 
You know I'm telling the truth. They tell you, did you try turning it off and turning it back it's on so again? That's true. And that's kind of what life is about in my mind is you have to have the courage to step away and turn it off, which is scary. You don't know if anything's going to be there when you turn it back on. But Michael Landon was really good at that. You know, he wrote a series to the end. And then, like with Little House, he literally blew up the set into smithereens with TNT. I know the New York Times called it like the most apocalyptic uh, valedictory address of all time of a television show. He literally blew up the set and they didn't have, you know, fancy, you know, whatever CG or whatever it's called back in those days. He took dynamite and blew it up. And then he started with another show, Highway to Heaven, you know, things that was, it was very similar. It was the same formula, but it was a totally new experience. And he had that courage and that bravery. And I think that I've tried to have that in my life, whether it was being a child actor. And when I turned 18, I went off to Harvard and it was the furthest possible place I could go. Um, I didn't I had been accepted to much closer schools, but I thought I didn't want to be tempted to go home on the weekend and go on auditions. It was being an actor was the only thing I'd known since I was six months old. I did a Johnson and Johnson baby shampoo commercial and I had never not been an actor. And I thought, I'm going to really go away and put this in the drawer for a while. And if it calls me back, then I know it's real, you know, and and if it doesn't, maybe there's something else out there for me since I I did enjoy it, but I obviously didn't choose it at six months. Um, And I got into news, which I liked so much better because I know to the outside world, it looks like it's the same thing. You're in front of the camera. And obviously, I have some sort of pathological need for attention. And I'll work on that with a therapist when I have time. Right now, I'm too exhausted. But (laughs) anyway, it's very different to me because I'm always saying my own words. You know, it's my own thoughts. It's my own feelings, whatever it is, you know, whether we're on a debate show or a couch show or, you know, I'm a reporter, it's all coming from my brain where when you're an actor, I know it's art, but to me, I was a marionette, you know, acting out someone else's thoughts and words. Got it. So you study economics at Harvard and you graduated with honors there. You share some really important economic and financial lessons in the book. And so one that I especially love is that you say, You're an idiot if you spend money like today's paycheck will be your paycheck every week for the rest of your life. Please elaborate on that. You are such a good money girl, by the way. I mean, you're you're so smart about this stuff, and you picked right up on, on the area that probably I'm the most passionate about, being an economics girl. But I see this all the time, and there were so many people who... Um, you get a great job or a great paycheck or, I mean, it's kind of like the professional athlete, but we all do it to a certain extent and you start spending like, this is my new norm. And you don't know. I mean, you know, you could, this could be your best paying job. You have no idea. And you have to operate like, I'm not going to have this forever. And what am I going to do? And I, you know, you've seen so many stars and stuff really blow a fortune that way. And I feel like I've always been pretty conservative with money. So what's your, I was going to say, what's your investing style and... My investing style, um, you know, I always say that you have to you have to have the backup to the backup to the backup. You know, I mean, you you never know what's going to happen. You don't want to be in a position. To me, the idea of being rich isn't a number. It's not about what your friends think because I've always known people who were envious of the guy with the bigger yacht or who felt better than the you know they're solidly middle class and they think they're so rich. You know, it's all perspective. So to me, the idea of being rich or wealthy is the is that you're not stressing and sweating at the end of the month to meet your bills. That you can comfortably make your nut, you know, for for the month. You meet it and you're not stressed about it. That's what being wealthy is. So a lot of that is to me. So that's a lot of that is about um, how much you're spending. And always keeping that in proportion to what you actually have, which sounds obvious, but too many people don't actually do that. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of investing, uh, I'm actually really conservative, which is terrible because I'm on a stock show. But I am one of those people that likes to buy the index. And I am one of those people that invest in real estate. And it, I, I don't invest in vacation real estate. We've been burned on that in the past. Yeah. But I'm a pretty conservative person. I mean, also, my husband is in private equity. And so he's really the one you know who does it for us and stuff. But I'm not afraid of debt and leverage because obviously he's an LBO guy. But um, I just think that it has to be it has to be smart. You have to, if it's illiquid, you have to really be able to hang in there until it improves. Indeed. Was there ever a time in your life that you worried about money? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. I mean, the whole time I was growing up, and I talk about this a lot in the books, is that my parents' idea of financial planning was to not plan at all, to not have one. And they were, they lived all these, I mean, you know, I love my dad to death, but it was, he thought that, you know, being the man of the family, he brought the paycheck home and he turned it over to my mom, who, you know, spent money like a banana republic and, you know, was just sort of, it was. It made me very nervous, and I think as a result, I've always had a job, always. I mean, after I was on Little House, I worked in the kitchen at Harvard to save money so I could do the free internship. I was a waitress proudly many times. I mean, Melissa Gilbert said to me once, what was it like to have a minimum wage job where you're wiping the table and you're serving people after you were – a TV star, quote unquote, and had made so much per week. And, and, you know, I was, she's like, that must have been humbling. And I said, no. I mean, I, I feel like Michael Landon, of all people, raised us to believe that every paycheck has value, every job earns respect, deserves respect. I would have no problem working at a Walmart tomorrow proudly if I lost my job to support my family. Part of having kids is this idea to me that my husband could disappear tomorrow, something could happen to him. It's my responsibility to feed and clothe and shelter my kids, maybe not in the same way they're used to, but they're my responsibility. And I'm I'm proud to do any job, and I've always felt that way. And I almost have like a permanent insecurity about money. So I'm, I'm probably overly conservative, um, but that's just sort of, you know, you are how you were raised in a lot of ways. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So we're hearing so much about this $30 trillion wealth transfer happening in America. Women stand to inherit a good deal of that. Do you think women are prepared? You know, that's a good question. I mean, you see women traditionally get worse mortgage rates. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Don't stand up for themselves as well. Don't negotiate as hard, whether it's getting a loan or it's their salary. On the other hand, I do think that they're more conservative and there's something good about that. You know, I think they are more concerned about, well, I'm not going to, you know, risk this much. And that can be a good thing. Um, you know, I, I hope they understand what it takes to retire. And I think way too many people in America have put themselves in a position where they're going to be working for their whole entire life. And I've, I've never believed that Social Security was going to be there for me. I was taught as a little kid it was not going to be there when I was growing up. So I've always had a mind for retirement and that sort of thing. Um, and I think you need a lot of safety. So I hope women are ready for that. I think they are 
readier than they think they are. They lack economic confidence. And part of that comes from taking the reins of just a little bit for something for a period of time. If you're not the bill player in your house, try something on your own and get comfortable because that day could come for you. For sure. I, I know you talk a lot about being a perfectionist in the book and trying to overcome that. And I hear from a lot of women, they're afraid to start investing because they want to be perfect. They want to be an expert. So what advice do you have for them? Buy an index. I mean, like, play it safe. Do Just do something and watch it grow. Put it there. Um, you know, I always say when the market's down, people, and I know this happens to you too, people go, should I get out? And I'm like, no. Why would you lock in that loss? I also say people always ask me about individual stocks, and I know there are so many people who do well with that and have great ideas and follow it. I think most of us, especially women, are too busy. You know, we have too much responsibility to be that active. And I think a great way to get started is to buy the S&P, you know, like invest conservatively and then check it. And watch it. And especially right now when the market's been on a good run, it feels good to watch it grow and it gives you that confidence. It also gives you the discipline. It feels like you're shopping. It gives you the discipline to not spend when you're watching your savings grow. I did a thing in college where I had all these part-time jobs and I was trying to save money because I knew I was going to be have a terrible job when I graduated. In fact, I ran a teleprompter for $6.10 an hour in Maine. I was the only Harvard graduate working for minimum wage who moved to Maine. But what I did in college was I saved all the money I made doing tech support, waiting tables. Um, I worked at a, I worked at a TV station, you know, doing little all kinds of stuff. And I would watch the balance grow. And to me, that was more rewarding than shopping. I mean, sometimes I would buy something and I'd be like, oh, because I would check the balance all the time. And you can do the same thing, you know, if you're getting into buying stocks right now because they tend to be going up. Now, when it starts going down, you might want to take a little break because you don't want to panic and get out. That's the worst thing you can do to lock in your loss. But it's a great way to reward yourself and to get motivated to save and invest by looking at what you've built. How often do you look at your investments? Um, you know, less so now because I am busier. Um, again, you know, I mean, I'm not, since I've been married, you know, I'd be lying if I said I'm not the main person who, you know, makes those decisions in our house because my husband's a financial professional, you know, I mean, that's, we also both, I mean, have a lot of limitations on what we can actually do because of both of our jobs. So I couldn't be an active trader if I wanted to. Um, but I think that's probably good for me. Do you remember your first investment? Um, well, I mean, it's funny. I've had a pension since I was six months old because when you started in, in when entertainment and I joined SAG, there's a SAG retirement fund. So it's, it's interesting because I learned about that kind of fixed payout, um, retirement scheme and it's really bad. You know, I mean, like when I look at what, what my quote unquote pension is from having worked and paid in my whole entire life since I was six months old, it's horrible compared to what it would have been if I just put the same little amount of money in like the S&P or anything. And it really always drove home the point. I always understood. I felt like unions were inherently misguided because I had, and probably that formed a lot of my political thought because I was a member of a union from the time I was six months old. And I understand it was put in place to protect the little guy, but it really did me no favors. You know, the whole time I was in it and paying dues, living by the restrictions, um, paying into that pension, that sort of thing, it was not was not great for me. You've three adorable kids. Oh, so sweet. And in the book, you in Lessons from the Prairie, you share that you had a do- your daughter through a surrogate. Yes. And I know some of our listeners are thinking about that. So I'm yeah. just wondering what that experience was like and what advice you have for women who are thinking about that. I think it's one of the best chapters in the book. And I do a whole chapter in a real deep dive. I have a perspective that 
probably almost no one else has because I have two children that I had the old-fashioned way, and then I have one that I had through a surrogate, and I have this rare genetic blood disorder that they didn't know about. They misdiagnosed it with my first son, who almost died on the way out. I was sick immediately with my second one, and actually they recommended that maybe I terminate the pregnancy. I didn't, thank God, I love my son Grayson so much. Um, but it was very difficult, and I knew I couldn't have more kids. Um, my doctor had said for my husband to rehearse the speech that he would give my two sons to tell them that I had died trying to have a third child because those two weren't enough. And it was such a harsh, awful thing to say, and it gives me chills even now to recount it, but she knew I'm that kind of a person where I think, I can do it. You know, I'm just going to... I'm going to do what I need to do because this is what my family wants and I'm never thinking about my the risk to myself, you know. Anyway, um, so the surrogate process was really interesting and I went into it in great t- detail. It started out very rough and we ended up meeting this family that was such a miracle and such a blessing and all they wanted to do was give the joy of a child to another family. And my husband and I, we were so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. We felt so selfish. Um, it was It was – it was amazing to sit there and watch someone to be in the delivery room. And I, in many ways, I had the dad experience. You know, I watched someone give of themselves and go through so much pain. And there's nothing you can do to help them. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's it's so overwhelming. And this beautiful child shows up. And this amazing family who did this for us, you know, said, thank you for taking us on this journey. And my husband and I, we were all crying. And I just... Why would they thank us? I mean, they did this beautiful thing for us. And I know listeners out there think it's about money, and I made the same mistake too. It's not. I mean, it's like families in the military where they want to do something for the greater good. And I know with this family, you know, every time we'd be at a doctor's appointment, I'd try and buy a cheeseburger for her, and she would bristle and not want me to. And I'm like, my daughter is literally kicking you in the stomach and sitting on your kidney. Can I please pay for the cheeseburger? She needs a cheeseburger. Can I please? Can I do anything for you? And she was just so lovely and gracious and, um, you know, and, and young, and she barely gained any weight. And it was just, you know, I know for other moms, she gained 19 pounds, and my daughter was like 10 of that. I mean, it was amazing. And she just, she, we were at a water park the day before she gave birth um, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and she was there with her own two children and stayed longer than we did. I was like, I'm tired. I can't. I got to get out of here. And she's like, we're going to go on more rides. I'm like, wow. I mean, she's just sort of a wonder woman, but such a gracious spirit. Kids were so sweet. We have a beautiful picture in the book of both of our families together. I was just texting with her yesterday. I wouldn't picture like we send pictures back and forth of all the kids and we're planning a reunion and she just it was a miracle experience but not without its challenges and the first person we were matched with actually tested positive for marijuana when we went to like the third doctor's appointment and I I, it's just kind of boggles the mind because you're like well you knew you were going to have a test like we've gone through all this emotion and time and you flew all the way to New York and you like smoked a joint before you came here like I don't so there was there's it's definitely it's really tough I mean it's really odd in so many ways but it really makes you believe in miracles and you know everybody asked do you love your daughter you know who you didn't have the same as the sons who you carried inside you oh yeah oh yeah without question there is no difference yeah so sweet i love that um you've talked it's increasingly important for you to be who you are and this whole idea of authenticity and how you know many of the powerful women we've spoken to here have brought up the same thing so i'm just wondering how being authentic is linked to success how do you see that i think because of social media because there's so many things out there when you try and misrepresent yourself or be something you're not people can tell they can smell it i mean 
they don't like it. They don't buy in. They wonder what you're hiding. They're just not attracted to what you're doing. So I don't think you have a choice. And part of that is you have to be okay with your flaws and your faults. And for me, you know, I, I feel like I'm just too old to sweat the small stuff. You know, I mean, I don't care. I'm like, you know, I have bunions. My feet are hideous. I have a lot of cellulite. You know, I have good stuff, but I have just as much bad stuff as everyone else. And you just, I don't know, at some point, I, I think part of it's age and part of it's you love your kids, you love your family, whatever it is that gives you joy in life. You have to get comfortable with yourself. I think you have to be authentic. Um, you can't, if you're going to try and misrepresent yourself, you have no hope of remembering whatever lie you're telling all the time. It's going to come out. Media is everywhere. Social media is everywhere. People know each other better. And it's exhausting. I mean, who has time to try and be fake and try and be perfect and try and be superwoman? I don't have time for that. I mean, the next superwoman I see, I mean, they're going to strangle her with their cape or I'm going to borrow it to clean up a spill for my kids. I mean, it's just, and people hate you. You know, when you pretend like you're perfect, people really don't like that. So Superwoman doesn't have a lot of friends either. So I always say, show them your cellulite. I mean, let it out into the air and people will like you better. You'll be more relaxed. And, you know, I'm, I've made lots of mistakes on the air. I try not to, you know, you, you've got to be good 99% of the time for people to believe in you. But when you make a mistake, own it, apologize. Um, I don't know. I, I try to do these things and, and I try to teach my kids to kind of live that way because it's just easier. It's less, less exhausting and you'll have more friends. Time now for your secrets. One thing that I do is when you're, so you know how you're tempted to shop online. I leave it in the basket and leave the website and then see, do you have to go back and get it? Take that moment to pause and take the time pressure away. And you may be surprised at what you really need and what you don't. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck, filmmaker Lori Silverbush, and top chef Tom Colicchio. Thanks for listening. I'm Veronica Dagger. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.